In this first hour, a conversation with Emmy-winning filmmaker, political analyst, and New York Times bestselling author Chris Whipple about his latest text, The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris, good to have you on the program. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Great to be with you, Travis. It's good to have you on. Thank you for your time. We'll talk about Biden and a few other things, of course, in, in this hour. Before I get into the text, let me just start with, uh, we'll be talking in our second hour about a lot of Trump news of late. Uh, and every day there's Trump news. Uh, so we'll talk about some of that in the second hour with, with Connie Rice while we also talk about these um, uh, these murders in Jacksonville. But let me just ask broadly how you think the president is navigating this uh, particular and peculiar space. And what I'm referencing is we've never, of course, been in a moment like this where his chief rival, the, uh, the person that we expect to be his opponent, the presumptive nominee, is in the midst of all the drama and brouhaha uh, that surrounds him at the moment. And so we spend a lot of time talking about Trump, but how do you think Joe Biden has navigated this moment given what's happening on the other side of the aisle, as it were? Yeah, Thomas, I think the answer to that is he's navigating it very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. I think Joe Biden wants to be absolutely sure that he doesn't play into the crazy conspiracy narrative of Trump and the MAGA movement, that this is somehow a political prosecution, that there's a two-tier system of justice where Hunter Biden gets to take a walk and uh, and uh, the, the Biden Justice Department goes after his political foes. That is not the case, and Joe Biden wants to make sure that uh, he doesn't fuel that narrative by talking too much about it. But it's going to be a fine line for him to walk because in this campaign, he has to talk not just about the economy and all the stuff he wants to brag about. Mm-hmm. He's got to talk about the threat to democracy that is posed by the MAGA movement, the continuing threat. Yeah, and that is tricky terrain. I'm glad you went there. I'll follow you. On the one hand, um, one could argue that, as you just did, that the way he's handling it right now um, is is pretty spot on. He, he's, 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 not, he's not wading into those deep waters. Uh, one could put it this way. At the moment, he's, he's pretty much taking a hands-off approach. On the other hand, given what you just said, uh, that our democracy is hanging in the balance, as it were, and given that you have to win by being aggressive in a campaign, uh, you can't win by, again, a hands-off strategy, it puts him in a tricky situation. So I, I, what's, what's your read of when, where, and how he needs to hit the accelerator? Because right now, he might, be, he might not be on the break, but he's not, he's not really being aggressive knowing that, uh, that Trump is gaining ground every day. I mean, we'll talk about it more later in the program. You saw the same numbers I saw, Chris. This guy raised $7 million, his campaign, $7 million, like yeah. right after that Georgia, <laughs> when he showed up and turned himself in, the very next day, he raised $4.1 million the next 24-hour period. And now that number is well over $7 million. So, again, a hands-off approach is only going to work for so long. And, and, and I take your point, but, but tell me more. That's true. But I, I think he'll go there eventually. And, and remember that I uh, think back to the November 2022 midterm elections, when everybody said that Biden was going to get blown out, uh, you know, history says that you lose something like 40 seats from your party in a midterm two years after you've been elected, and mm-hmm. Biden defied those odds. Well, how did he do that? The way he did it was two things. He talked about women's reproductive rights, and he talked about the threat to democracy that was posed by MAGA. And, of course, in 2022, a lot of Trump wannabes you know, nut nut jobs were out running mm-hmm. 
and uh, and Biden Biden prevailed big time. Uh, he defied the historical expectations. So you're going to hear a lot about women's reproductive rights and the threat of MAGA uh, in the upcoming election and. Uh, so he'll he'll go there. I have no doubt. Yep. Um, so uh, my my chief uh, form of exercise is boxing. I'm I'm a pugilist, uh, and so I'm in uh, I'm in the ring often with my trainer. And when we come forward, I want I want to talk about the way I see this rematch, as it were. For those of you who are boxing fans, you know that uh, there are oftentimes rematches in the sport. And most times, I think it's fair to say, those rematches do not measure up. Everybody's talking now about whether or not there'll be a rematch between Errol Spence and Jamal Crawford. For what reason? I mean, Crawford jabbed him to death if you're a fight fan. Why uh, would there be a rematch? And what do we think Errol Spence would do, in fact, in a rematch? Not to get too far afield for those who are not sports fans, but you take my point of the metaphor, that we're about to have uh, presumably a rematch here, and oftentimes these rematches don't. Uh, measure up. Uh, Chris's book is called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. The question is whether the fight of his life was beating Trump the first time or the fight of his life is beating Trump the second time. Talk about that in a great deal more when we come forward on Tavis Smiling. For all the freedom loving folk, this is Tavis Smiling. I feel like Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Our guest is Chris Whipple. He's the author of the book, The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. He is an esteemed New York Times bestselling author, political analyst, and Emmy award-winning, award-winning filmmaker. And I'm pleased to have him on uh, this program today in this first hour to talk some, talk some politics. So, Chris, you heard me say a moment ago that um, rematches sometimes measure up. Oftentimes, they do not. Uh, broadly speaking, um, what is the fight of his life? The first time around, or the second time around? <clears throat> yeah, well, at both times, I think. And I love your metaphor because uh, rematches can be unpredictable, mm-hmm. as, as we all know. I mean, didn't did Muhammad Ali lose a few rematches? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was a while ago. But uh, it, it 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 can be unpredictable and and dangerous. And I think that in in this case, um, obviously, on paper, one would think that Joe Biden would have a comfortable margin on uh, Trump, that that this would be a rerun of 2020. But, you know, be careful what you wish for, because there are a lot of uh, what uh, Bill Clinton's White House chief, uh, Mac McClarty, used to call UFOs out there, mm-hmm. unforeseen occurrences. Mm-hmm. And you never know when one's going to rise up and bite you. You've got the, the age factor, you know, like it or not. Uh, a lot of people think Joe Biden is too old to run for re-election. You've got um, the possibility of the economy taking a, a bad turn. And, and then there's always the the prospect of a, of a third-party candidate coming out of nowhere and, and tipping the election to Trump. So a lot to worry about, including the fact that um, we could be, Joe Biden could be a slip and fall away from flipping the whole script a la Mitch McConnell. Now, God, let's, God bless him, let's hope not. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he's he's not getting any younger. Let me let you've said two or three things I want to uh, interrogate right quick. Let me start with the, the latter first. If Joe Biden were to have, and he's had any number of slips, uh, as you well know, I'm talking now verbal slips. We'll get to the physical slips in a moment. Yeah, any number of verbal slips. What would happen um, if Joe Biden had a moment caught on film like Mitch McConnell, where he just freezes? or gets lost in a loop 
and I wish him no ill will. But there are all kinds of conversations, yeah. of course, about his mental acuity. You went there, so I'm following you. You wrote the book. If Joe Biden yeah. were to have a moment like Mitch McConnell, what happens politically? You think? Would that be the end? Of, would that be the end? Well, let me just say, first of all, having uh, having studied him for the last two years and, and talked to his entire inner circle, uh, the notion that he's, you know, the, the verbal slips are much ado about nothing. Okay. I mean, this is a guy who used to have, this is a guy who used to have a speech impediment. Uh, a lot of it is just, uh, you know, a hangover from that. He, mentally, he's, he's fine, I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the answer... To your question is would would the GOP absolutely hang that around his neck and and beat him to death with it if that were to happen if he were to have a McConnell moment absolutely mm-hmm. that would be that would be really bad news for for Biden the good news is that he's you know he he may walk like a zombie he's got arthritis mm-hmm. uh, that's just you know we all know people his age who walk like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we also know 60-year-olds who act like old people, and we, and we all know 85-year-olds who were, who were full of life and uh, firing on every cylinder. So mm-hmm. I think aging is a very individual thing, and it's overblown in Biden's case. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier um, that um, on paper was your phrase. On paper, uh, one would think that, that Joe Biden could, t- could uh, take Donald Trump out again. Well, Depending on what paper you're looking at. Uh, if you're looking at uh, paper polls, <laughs> the polls indicate, everyone I've read, indicates that these guys are neck and neck, four indictments in and counting, and they're still neck and neck on, on paper vis-a-vis the polls. And you say what about that? Yeah, I think that poll, with, there was a there was a 43-43 tie. Right. Um, and I forget which, maybe Quinnipiac, I'm not sure now. I mm-hmm. think that was kind of an outlier. I think the other polls have showed a, more of a lead for Biden pr- pretty comfortably in the popular vote. But but the trouble is that elections are not won with the popular vote. Yeah, exactly. We all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all too well. It's happened all too often to the Democrats. And, uh, you know, when you get down to those three key swing states, it only takes about 40,000 votes total in those states to, to swing the election. So that's where the real battle will be joined. And, uh, you know, there are no guarantees. So the Biden campaign has got to run scared. Let's mm-hmm. hope there's no... Let's hope there's no overconfidence whatsoever among those folks. Yep. Uh, let me pivot for a second and we'll come back. Um, what's your personal view, to the extent you have one and want to share it, uh, of the Electoral College? Because you're right, the popular vote ain't what it's all about. Ask Hillary Clinton. Um, the, the Electoral College, what's your view of that? And I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to recall, and you would know better than I, Chris, whether or not Joe Biden has ever commented, uh, ever shared his true thoughts about the Electoral College. Yeah, I don't. I'm not aware that Joe Biden has gone on the record wanting to do away with the electoral college. Uh, I, my personal feeling is that uh, we should get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's an outdated relic of uh, that, that favored the slave states way back when. I think it's uh, undemocratic. Uh, I think it's long outlived its usefulness, and frankly, it's given us a skewed result uh, all too often in recent history. Mm-hmm. So uh, so so that's that's where I stand. The campaign uh, the uh, electoral college is one thing. Let me just ask you before I again get straight away into your text of uh, the fight of his life inside Joe Biden's White House. Uh, l- let me ask you um, again the electoral college notwithstanding whether or not the changes 
in the campaign calendar, uh, obviously on the Democratic primary side. What does that do uh, potentially to aid and abet uh, Joe Biden coming out the block strong? Well, I think it's going to help Biden without any doubt. I mean, this was not no coincidence that uh, South Carolina is now at the at the top, and uh, and that New Hampshire has been pushed back. and And you'll recall that um, Joe Biden was dead and buried in 2020. Nobody thought mm-hmm. he was going to be the nominee uh, after Iowa. I remember talking to John Podesta, whom I got to know because I wrote a book about. White House Chiefs of Staff, mm-hmm. uh, and he was one of Clinton's. I remember talking to Podesta at the time, right after Iowa, and, and he said, he's he's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's no there's no way Joe Biden comes through. Well, South Carolina, as we all know, <laughs> uh, saved him, uh, and the African-American vote in particular, mm-hmm. uh, and Jim Clyburn's endorsement changed everything, turned everything around on a dime. So I, I think it's and it'll be a real advantage. Remember, he did badly. Biden did in New Hampshire. He, he really, you know, jumped on a plane and got out of the state as fast as he could yeah. uh, and went to South Carolina. And the rest is history. Yep. Um, there's a great deal of talk, as you know, every day about what I would call an enthusiasm gap um, that those on the right, those, those those MAGA supporters seem to be a lot more uh, enthused. Again, back to the seven million dollars Trump raised, like in basically 48 hours after he turns himself in in Georgia. Uh, there is no yeah. short. There is no shortage of enthusiasm on that side of the aisle. On Biden's yeah. side of the aisle, um, every poll, every survey, every study I've read suggests that while he may be the standard bearer, he's not really the number one choice of Democrats. Say nothing of Republicans. Uh, his own party uh, wishes he were not the nominee at this particular point in his life. They're grateful for what he did in the first term. He saved the democracy, anybody but Trump. But this time around, there are real concerns that you and I discussed earlier. My, my question is obviously whether or not you think that enthusiasm gap uh, to your earlier uh, formation is much ado about nothing and that if and when Trump does, in fact, become the nominee and people realize how stark the choices are, we will once again want anybody but Trump and Joe Biden sails back into the White House. No, I think it's much ado about something. It's much ado okay. about a lot. It's, okay. it's a very real factor. You put your finger on it. It's a real concern. One of my chief concerns or would be if I were running uh, Joe Biden's campaign. And by the way, I think my book... Uh, the fight of his life uh, is is pretty pretty even handed warts and all look even mm-hmm. though it may be may be overall favorable to Biden, but the enthusiasm gap is real and it's and it's a real worry and I and look I'm old enough to remember uh, I was a kid but I'm old enough to remember the the last election that that was felt like it was as extent, as existential as this one mm-hmm. 1968. And I, I was a big Bobby Kennedy fan, uh, and when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, uh, you know, nobody had any enthusiasm for poor Hubert Humphrey, mm-hmm. who was the who ended up as the nominee, and uh, and he lost to Nixon, as we all know. Um, it it could very well happen in in 2024, and I think that um, people should just remember that this is. This is, I think, the most consequential election of my lifetime, and I've been around for a while, so I hope people will get out and vote. Is there anything that Joe Biden can do to ramp up that enthusiasm, or is he or is he really um, going to have to rely on the fact that he's fortunate enough to have Donald Trump as an opponent 
and people just don't want to see the second coming of Donald Trump? I think it's going to be the latter. I, it, you know, at this point, Joe Biden, there are no surprises left about Joe Biden. Right. Nobody's going to suddenly, we're not, we're not going to wake up one morning and suddenly be excited about and think that Joe Biden is uh, a charismatic figure. He's, he's not. Mm-hmm. But, but just take a look at what he's, what he's accomplished uh, the last four years. I mean, 13 million jobs. Uh, record low unemployment, uh, record low black unemployment, uh, bipartisan infrastructure, a chips bill, a black female justice on the Supreme Court rallying NATO against Ukraine. Nobody would have predicted that he'd be doing all of that, plus, you know, passing bipartisan legislation in this polarized world. So, um, you know, I think people need to to, to remember that uh, that's, that's not bad for an 80-year-old. Yeah. I've asked this question of others, but not of one who has written a book called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. I've asked it of others, but not one who spent the last couple of years talking to everybody on his team. Um, why is it, with all that you've laid out, and you ain't the first person to, to offer me that agenda, I know it well, I could, I could quote it in my sleep, uh, I know what he's accomplished. Why is it then that this race is still neck and neck? Why is it that he seems not to be getting the credit uh, maybe it's not the message, but the messenger, and you can't do anything about the latter, can you? Yeah, no, there's not much that Joe Biden can can do about the messenger. I mean, he he is who he is, yep. um, and I think you will will we'll see him out there on the on the stump. We'll see a lot more of him as the election uh, goes on. But uh, look, I, I think it's a, a real mystery as to why. He's not getting more credit for the achievements that he's made. Part of it may be that we're just in a post-Trump world where the, the country is so bitterly divided and polarized, you'll never see 50% approval ratings again. Um, you know, that, that may well be true. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just so polarized these days that you're just not going to see the usual bump bounce that uh that previous presidents would get with that kind of record let, let me let me probe that because you said you're the first person i've ever heard say that uh certainly in in uh in 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 recent memory and it's worth interrogating so i'm so glad you went there chris Whipple. when when these polls come out um there's always conversation indeed on this program and on the stations i'm heard on across the country there are there's always conversation about how bad his poll numbers are and the point you've just made now is resonant uh, because if the country is as polarized as we all know it is, why then do we ever think that any president from this point out is going to have poll numbers above 50 percent, much less in the 60s and 70s? That may never happen again, given how polarized the nation is. But yet when these polls come out, I'm guilty of it. Everybody jumps on these polls and says, oh, my God, his poll numbers are so bad when we know that the country is more divided than it ever has been. We're just that polarized. It's a powerful point that yeah. I've never heard anybody make to me. Oh well, I you know, look. I think it's uh, I think it's true. I think um, I, I, and and it's not. And also, we should remember try to put it in a little bit of perspective because mm-hmm. if you if you rewind to uh, to where Ronald Reagan was at this point of his presidency, uh, with a really severe recession. Uh, do we have Do we have to, Chris? Do, do, do we have to go back to the Reagan era? Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> I digress. I'm sorry. But go just ahead. Just for a yeah. second. Yeah. Just for a second. All right. Make it. Make it quick. Make it quick. Make it quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reagan's Reagan's approval rating was about the same as Biden's. It was yeah. high high thirties. Mm-hmm. High thirties. 
and and not too long thereafter, he had you know morning again in America. Yeah, you know, and a landslide in '84. So we've been there. Yep. All right, that was quick. That was quick. Thank God for Jesus. I didn't want to stay in that Reagan era for for, for, for too long. Um, when we come forward, uh, there are a number of things I want to get to. Of course, we're going to get right into what uh, Chris Whipple learned when he went inside Joe Biden's White House the last couple of years. Uh, but he said something a moment ago that, that made me think that I want to take his, his temperature on. When, when Joe, he mentioned a moment ago that you, we're going to see a lot more of Joe Biden out on the stump. Indeed, we will. That is, is, is dramatically different, if you recall, from what we saw the first time Joe Biden won. Joe Biden was campaigning during a pandemic and the GOP made fun of him all the time. But Joe Biden basically campaigned for president from Wilmington, Delaware. That's where he won. But he basically campaigned from his from 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 his 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 campaign headquarters, essentially in Wilmington. He didn't get out. He wasn't traveling the country. COVID didn't allow him him to do so. Why do I raise that? Because he was able to safely campaign. And a lot of what we might have seen, we didn't see because he wasn't out on the stump. What happens now when Joe Biden day in and day out is, in fact, out on the stump? Um, does that open up the door for more missteps and mistakes and miscues? We talked about that earlier, but in the context of his being out there more frequently, what might that mean for this contest um, that is in the offing? Uh, Chris Whipple is our guest. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Let's get back to more of Chris Whipple right now on Tavis Smiley, a New York Times bestselling author, political analyst, Emmy award-winning filmmaker, and author of the book, The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris, good to have you on in this hour. Uh, let me jump right back to what I what I uh, teed up a moment ago, and that is, uh, and it occurred to me again while you were talking, uh, and you used that phrase, we're going to see him, uh, Joe Biden, that is a lot more out on the stump. We didn't see him on the stump four years ago. And we didn't see him on the stump. He was on his rump. <laughs> he was on his rump in, in Wilmington, Delaware. He was not out on the stump. Uh, in and, the basement. Right? Yeah, in the basement, yeah. So uh, that raises the question whether or not once he gets out on the stump, we'll see him fall on his rump. Um, you tell me what you expect when we see this guy uh, out campaigning like we did not four years ago. Again, all these, so much of what we're dealing with is rare. We've never been in space like this. He did not have to get out and campaign four years ago and couldn't because of the pandemic. But now... Now, uh, we expect this guy to be out there every day moving around the country, and that seems to uh, open him up to some missteps, some miscues, the kind of stuff that you said earlier, in some respect, is much ado about nothing, but you conceded that if we catch him in the wrong moment, that could be decisive. Yeah, well, first apologies for talking over you as you were trying to... No, not a problem. But... um, Sounds, sounds to me, Tavis, like you want to send him back to the basement. <laughs> it's worried, safer. It's safer, man. It's you're safer. You're worried about old Joe <laughs> stepping on another sandbag. Uh, look, I think I think that there's not too much to worry about there because his campaign team is going to be very strategic about all of this. And back in November of 2022, again, when he had that great uh, – better than uh, expected performance the Democrats did in the 2022 midterms. Uh, Biden was, uh, basically what happened was his team sat him down. Biden wanted to go everywhere and talk about everything. He wanted to brag about all the stuff he'd done. And they sat him down and they said, Mr. President, look, you're going to go to the following states where we think you're going to make the biggest difference. And you're going to talk about women's reproductive rights and the threat of MAGA. 
to democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, the rest is history. He followed that script. I think they will do the same thing this on this go around, and I think Biden will listen. He's going to go where they only where they tell him to go, where he thinks he can. You know, the states where he thinks he can make up uh, the make a positive difference. And I think you'll see him pretty focused, uh, and they'll try to keep sandbags away from him. Yeah. This question may be way too soon, and for that matter, it may change uh, dramatically. I suspect it will between now and then. But let me ask anyway, at this point uh, in the process, whether or not we already know, whether or not the Biden campaign already knows the battlegrounds where they're going to have to, 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 to get it on this year and whether or not because of what's happened over the last four years, those battlegrounds are different now than they were then. Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And man, it may be a little bit over my pay grade uh, because um, I'm not, I'm not inside the Biden reelection campaign or, yeah. or seeing those numbers at this point. But I think I think some of the states are pretty obvious. I think I think Georgia mm-hmm. uh, and 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 Wisconsin and Illinois and uh, but but beyond that, I I don't want to speculate about exactly where they they'll be going. Yep. So let me let me get straight away. Uh, we've been talking about all the issues that you cover in your text, but let me go straight away into the book. Uh, the book is called "The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House." Our guest, Chris Whipple, is the author of that uh, that fine book. Um, so when one goes inside the Biden White House, what does one see? You mentioned earlier you saw warts and all. I could start by asking what warts did you see, but I'll let you take it. I'll <laughs> let you take it as you want to take it. When you go inside the Biden White House, what do you see? Well, I'll tell you this: you see you see a lot more drama behind the scenes than you might guess looking in from the the outside. But mm-hmm. having said that, you know my first two books about the White House chiefs of staff and the CIA directors covered something like 100 years of history cumulatively. Mm-hmm. My, this book, The Fight of His Life, covers two years, mm-hmm. the first two years of the Biden White House, and yet it was a bigger challenge, more difficult, and that's partly because you're writing about a White House in mid-flight. It's like trying to design an airplane in mid-flight. Mm-hmm. You don't know where it's going to land. Uh, but compounding that, this is one of the most battened down, disciplined, uh, you know, organized White Houses in recent memory, Having, and despite that, I was able to get a lot of his inner circle. Uh, I was able to knock him off script and get some pretty candid uh, talk about the drama behind the that debacle of uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, Biden's true feelings about his Secret Service detail and about Kamala Harris and a lot of other stuff. So there's a lot of good inside stuff despite that. Yep. Um I'd almost forgotten about it until you said it. Uh, so much was made of the fact that Joe Biden uh, would would in fact pay a price for that Afghanistan debacle. That withdrawal was just a hot mess, as we all know. And until you said it, we'd forgotten about it. Uh, Ukraine, at least on the international front, uh, has taken the place of that particular debacle. And uh, although yeah. many of us have concerns about this blank check that we seem to be giving Ukraine, um, he has successfully, to your point, rallied NATO to Ukraine's defense. And I think that the, the, the conversation we had a while ago about his paying a price for the debacle in Afghanistan is old news at this point. I don't think anybody even remembers that at this point. Yeah, maybe not. But it's part of the story of this White House. And I really see the Biden presidency and, and my book as a kind of political thriller in three acts. Mm-hmm. The first act was the unbelievably fraught transition uh, the final days from Trump to Biden, and and I tell the previously untold story of how 
one of Trump's uh, deputy chiefs, unbeknownst to Trump and right under his nose, helped the Biden team carry out the peaceful transition of power despite Trump's uh, opposition. Uh, then there came the first year of the Biden White House, which was dominated by Afghanistan and mm-hmm. uh, his Biden's inability to pass major legislation. You remember Build Back Better and sure. bipartisan infrastructure were going nowhere for a long time. We, we forget that at that point in his presidency, about nine months in, there was, you know, people were wondering, will this be a failed presidency? And then came the third act on February 24, 2022 when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and Biden rose to beat that moment. I don't think anybody else could have as well as he did. I think that where everything went wrong with Afghanistan, almost everything went right with Ukraine. Uh, nobody believed it was happening, but they, but Biden uh, told them it was and rallied the NATO allies. And, and now, of course, um, you know, then that was followed by a tremendous record of legislative success. So now we now we look at Act Four, which is this rough and uh, really challenging uh, re-election campaign, uh, and uh, that's that's the next act, and there's no ending yet. Yeah, I've been inside enough uh, White House administrations in my career to know that even when you're on the team, as I say, when you're running as a team, Biden Harris. Uh, once inside the White House, there is still the Biden team and there is the Harris team. That's true for any administration. <laughs> yep. So let me ask you what you well, I'm looking at my clock here. Let me just let me tee this up and we'll get your response on the other side. I don't want to let you get into this and have to cut you off um, again. They run as a team. But once they're in the White House, there's still two different teams. There's the Biden team and there's the Harris team. They don't always get along. I want to ask Chris Whipple and I will when we come forward. Uh, what he heard from the Biden people about Kamala Harris and whether or not he thinks what he heard on or off the record come out of their mouths about Kamala Harris was, in fact, the truth, the way they really feel. We'll talk about that when we come forward, the author of The Fight of His Life inside Joe Biden's White House, Chris Whipple, who you're listening to right now on Tavis Money. Unapologetically progressive, Progressive. unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. All right, Chris Whipple, um, keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it real. What did the Biden folk tell you about Kamala Harris, and do you believe what you heard? So, Tavis, you know that I wrote about this at some length in my book, mm-hmm. uh, The Fight of His Life, and it's a fascinating, complicated relationship between uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And in the beginning... I'll tell you what everybody was telling me, that Joe Biden really likes Kamala Harris, that they had and values her. They had a strong relationship. They were thrown together in the beginning, in part by COVID. Mm -hmm. She wasn't traveling because of COVID, and neither was he. And they were together. And and every time she wasn't at a meeting, Biden would look around and say, where is she? And he'd want her there. And we've all seen her perform as senator in those hearings when she's grilling uh, witnesses and and so she's good at that and and he valued her input. Then things got a little bit rocky as time went on and she had she struggled with particularly with the portfolio of the uh, the Northern Triangle, the border, and she mm-hmm. had that awkward interview with Lester Holt. You remember yep. all that stuff? And she began to get flack. And word got back to Joe Biden that not only was Kamala complaining about uh, how difficult her her assignments were, 
But the, the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, was talking about it around town, and this got back to Biden, and it pissed him off. Mm-hmm. And Biden was asked by a close friend, uh, how's Kamala doing? And he said, a work in progress. Mm. So that some of his frustration was showing there. And But having said that, I think that, so I'll tell you what I uh, heard a lot from Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff at the time. Right. He told, And he remember, keep in mind that he served as chief of staff to Joe Biden when Joe Biden was vice president. Mm-hmm. So he knows the deal. And he knows it's a really, really tough job being VP. So Klain would go into the vice president's office once a week and tell her, you know what? You, you can't score runs from the dugout, as he put it. You mm-hmm. got to get out there. And you got to be more, you know, raise your profile. We we want you out there. Mm-hmm. And she was reluctant to do it, maybe because she felt burned by that experience with Lester Holt. Who knows? Uh, but she was a reluctant warrior. And, and I think now, more recently, I think she's she's gained more confidence and she's out there talking about, especially about women's reproductive rights. And I think she's being more assertive. So, but it's a fascinating relationship, yeah. and there's been an evolution to it, which I write about in the book. Two things right quick, uh, watching my time here. One, there are those who believe that she was giving a difficult, given a difficult portfolio for a particular reason. You believe that? I, well, no doubt that she got a difficult portfolio. Um, I don't know that it was for any particular reason. I mean, it's pretty similar to the portfolio that Joe Biden had that mm-hmm. Obama gave him. Yeah. So Joe, but, but Joe Biden, Joe, Joe Biden had a lot yeah. more experience than Kamala Harris did, though. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So no, she she he gave her a tough he gave her tough assignments, and she and and in national security she did she made a real contribution. Yeah. <clears throat> I tell the story in the book <clears throat> just very quickly about how she confronted uh, Volodymyr Zelensky on the eve of the invasion and said, "Hey, listen, they're coming not just for Ukraine, but for you and your family." Yeah. And she had this private meeting that nobody uh, written about. Yeah. Um, uh, finally, on this issue, and we'll wrap our conversation when we come forward. Um, word on the street is that that Jill Biden still ain't feeling Kamala. She's never forgiven her for coming after Joe in that debate. So she's on the she, she was on the team. She was the pick to be the running mate for all the obvious reasons. But that Jill Biden wasn't and still is not feeling Kamala Harris. Anything on that? I would say in the beginning that that was a problem. There, you know. Jill Biden is, as, as you can imagine, fiercely loyal to Joe, and uh, <clears throat> that that whole family, I think, was not crazy about that debate performance. I think Jill, my personal feeling is, uh, what I'm, from what I hear, she got over it. Okay. Jill Biden's fine with it. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, when we come forward in our remaining moments with Chris Whipple, uh, we'll talk about the R word, race. Uh, and his read on how Joe Biden has done on that particular issue. There are any number of ways to read what he has and has not accomplished on the race front. Uh, never mind the fact that he wouldn't be there were it not for black voters, black women in particular. How has Joe Biden done on the race issue? We'll talk about that with Chris Whipple when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tavis Smiley, Smiley continues when we come forward. forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Got a few minutes left in this hour, Chris Whipple, before I lose you at the top of the hour. Let me close, I think, 
by getting your read on race, uh, you established earlier in this conversation, as if black folk don't already know this, uh, that Joe Biden is not president if it's not for the black vote, particularly in South Carolina and especially with African-American women. I could point to any number of things that he has done symbolically um, <clears throat> that would make you feel good if you're black. Uh, you mentioned KBJ on the Supreme Court. I could uh, do a long list of other things, including, of course, his running mate, Kamala Harris. Um, so symbolically, I think there's no debate about how he has done on the issue of race in this country, uh, the issue that, that I think is the most intractable issue that we face, although there are others on that list. It may be at the top of the list, particularly given this shooting that we saw in Jacksonville, Florida, days ago. It is clear to me that 60 years after the March on Washington, black folk are still the most hated folk in this country. Beyond the symbolism, how has Joe Biden done substantively on race issues? Well, substantively, <clears throat> I guess I would point to 13 million jobs created in the first four years, which is a record. Uh, as you know, his predecessor lost more jobs than any president in U.S. history. Uh, Biden's created more uh, historically low in unemployment rate and black unemployment rate. Um, I, I can tell you that in every conversation I had with early on and during his first term, when I when people were talking about COVID, the COVID response, the word equity would come up all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, he, he, they were constantly talking about community, marginalized communities, mm -hmm. um, largely African-American communities. It was very much a priority for this White House, I think. And his key, you know, he, some of his key advisors were, you know, Cedric Richmond and Susan Rice and, uh, and, and Jim Clyburn. Um, I think they had his ear constantly and still do. Mm -hmm. Um, so the really seems to me the really heavy lift for Biden was voting rights. He couldn't get it done uh, with the filibuster. He couldn't. But I guess my closing point on this would just be that never forget that. I, and I take him at his word. Charlottesville was the trigger that got Joe Biden to run for president. Mm -hmm. The reason he wanted to be president. I believe that the forces that Charlottesville represented are still on the march. Uh, they're very much on the march in 2024. Don't forget that his opponent is the guy who said there were very fine people on both sides. And mm. Biden, I think, is the guy who wants to uh, make sure that they don't prevail. Yep. I think um, that if he does not find a way in this next term, assuming he gets a second one, to get voting rights across the aisle, his, 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 his presidency is going to be tainted with black people. Uh, and I think that means he's going to have to rethink this filibuster, uh, these carve outs specifically on, on voting rights and, and maybe even on the George uh, uh, Floyd uh, Policing Act or the John Lewis yeah. version of it. I think on those two issues, yeah. on, on police reform and on voting rights, if he does not figure out a way to get that across the finish line, his record will be forever tainted when it comes um, to what black folk actually achieved for putting him in. So that's uh, that's uh, that's my take, and I, I digress. His name is Chris Whipple. Uh, the text is called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris, good to have you on. All the best to you, my friend. Thanks for your time. Tab, it's a real pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. A great honor to have you on.